Lord, for your goodness to us, for your, your blessings, your power. Thank you for the way you speak to us and how you lead us through this life, Lord. There, who are we without you, Lord? We desperately need you. We need your guidance, your instruction, your correction, your teaching, provision, everything we need you can supply and you do so graciously. We thank you for this place that you provided for us to gather and for our brothers and sisters to have fellowship with as we meet in one accord in your name. We ask that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would uh, speak to us through your word, that it wouldn't just be old news, it wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't be sleepy, Lord, we'd be excited and switched on to your spirit and what you're telling us. Thank you again for this time, this beautiful day you've provided, and for your great grace and love. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll be in Acts chapter 11, if you'll turn there. I'm dating myself a little bit when I say, when I was a kid, Transformers were cool. <laughs> Pretty cool, you know, you have this thing that looks like a car or a truck, a tank or a jet, but it can turn into a talking uh, fighting robot, which is pretty cool. I mean, robots are great. Um, but that sort of transformation is nothing compared to the transformation Jesus does inside of us. Religion really tries to reskin us on the outside. It, it wants to force us into a mold and put pressure on us to, to do certain things. But Jesus changes us on the inside where we're still in the same old skin. But our desires change, our thoughts change, and we're convicted about things that we never even thought about before. And we're caring about people that we would have really have written off years earlier. We're really naturally like chameleons. We can fit in to a lot of different situations, even at church. And we can do a lot of things, but that doesn't change us on the inside. God does that, and he does so like the metamorphosis. It's a transformation. It's totally different in nature than we were before. And he, he makes us new and he makes us totally different people that can serve him because he's given us a new spirit. He quickens us alive and new. And one great challenge of being led by the spirit, no matter how long you've trusted Jesus, when he leads you, he often leads you where you've never gone before. You can't look back at your experience and go, oh yeah, this is just like that time. Well, no, because you're in a different place and there's different challenges and I think as we grow older, um, the changing world, our bodies, the difficulties that we face, there's new challenges, there's new temptations. And right when we think, well, I've been made new, so my past doesn't matter, well, the past has a way of kind of pressing itself upon you and, and um, challenging us in new ways. And we're as weak as ever. We, there's no strength in our in our flesh to do the things of God. We need him. We so need the Lord and our failures keep us repenting. And um, It's like the more we know, the temptation to be proud grows. The Bible says that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And we begin, we can lose that humble posture in following Jesus because we know, we know what to do. So praise the Lord that even the proud and self-righteous are not beyond hope, because here stands one right here, uh, that God, he, he extends his grace to us, and his compassion and his mercies are new every morning. And uh, when I was a kid, I, I wanted to be saved from hell. Like, I didn't want to go to hell, 
but I didn't think anything of being saved from my pride. I didn't put pride on the same level to be avoided as hell. But God's changing that in me. And avoiding sin doesn't profit much if you're not doing what's right. That's another one. For me, I guess growing up, my Christian walk was very much about what I avoided or what I said, that's wrong from my high horse. But God, he, he wants to do a work in and through us. And I love it when he stuns us, when he shocks us. Has God, has God ever shocked you before? When you, when you realize the depth of his grace, when you recognize how much he loves you and other people. God stunned Peter and the Jewish believers by pouring out the Holy Spirit on the Gentiles. They thought they were the, the bastions of truth. You know, we know God. We know the truth. And, and even as believers, spirit-filled believers, they were amazed and astonished when, when Peter's talking to the centurion and his household that the Holy Spirit fell upon them. They start praising God and speaking in tongues. And they're like, what? Whoa. Shocking. Astonishing. And when they realized that the Gentiles were not spiritually behind the Jews in any way, that they had been made one through the gospel, that God had joined them in one body, it was a revelation. They, they were amazed by it. Not everyone was uh, immediately ecstatic about it, as we'll see. So Acts 11, starting in verse 1. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. The apostles, the followers of Jesus in Judea, the Jews, they heard the Gentiles had received the word of God. Are they rejoicing over that? No, they don't mention that at all. Peter travels back to Jerusalem, and he is immediately confronted by these offended Christians who contended with him. He had done the unthinkable, the inexcusable, in, according to Jewish law and tradition, by fraternizing with Gentiles, entering their house, and eating with them. That was just taboo. You do not do that. Gentiles receiving God's word and the baptism with the Holy Spirit was overshadowed by fleshly indignation. And how many times have we made the same error? We're indignant when we should be rejoicing. There are things to rejoice about, but there's this one thing that's just bugging us. We like, That's wrong. I got it, you know, and maybe we don't even confront the person, but we're thinking it, right? So they're angry, they're offended, they have this contentious posture because they hadn't heard the whole story. You guys know when you hear a story and the first person that you hear the story from, you're more inclined to believe their version of events than any following story that you hear. We're just that way. So they heard, they, he went and ate with those Gentiles. And he did? Really? He did. And they were just, okay, wait till he comes back. We're going to call him out for this. There's a, there's a scripture, Proverbs 18, 17. It says, the first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. So it seems right, and it could be true, but it's not the whole story. There's a great example of this in Genesis 38. Judah receives word that his daughter-in-law, who was widowed, 
twice over, had played the harlot and was with child. What was Judah's initial response? Bring her out and let her be burnt. Hmm. That's pretty full on. You know, outrage. Oh, I can't believe this. That No thought of who did the impregnating. No thought about the life that was in her at that time. Twins, I, I tell you. So she's brought out. Everyone's fired up. And she's like, well, hold on. You see this signet, bracelet, staff? Why don't you see? Can you discern whose these are? Oh, they're Judah's. The one who's calling for her head. You know, the one that's saying, let her be burnt. He was the one who had gone into a harlot by the side of the road. And he, I'm sure you could have heard a pin drop when, when the penny dropped. They're like, what? And Judah, in Genesis 38, 26, when facing the proof, Judah acknowledged them and said, she has been more righteous than I because I did not give her to Shelah, my son, and he never knew her again. No matter how physically unfit we are, we can always easily jump to conclusions. That's something we can do. (laughs) You may not be able to dunk a basketball, but man, you could jump to the moon in creating conclusions that are not there, even when you hear two sides of the story. That's not the whole story, is it? So be careful when you condemn others. In doing so, you often expose your own guilt and wickedness. And we see that here. It needed to be correct. They thought they needed to correct Peter, but actually it was they who needed correction. Peter needed correction. I need correction. We all do. However, God was going to do something through this interaction to expose the truth and to see how they would respond in faith. The Jewish perspective of Gentiles is well stated by Paul in Ephesians 2.12. He says, Without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's how the Jews view the Gentiles, and really that's how everyone is apart from God, without hope, without God. Aliens, you're, you're not belonging in the family of God. You have no right to claim any of the promises of God. It's like the promises of the Bible, they're not for you because you're not in him. That was the way the Jews looked at it. So for, for their mind, these Gentiles coming was astonishing. It was just blowing their minds, but it wasn't going against Scripture. Throughout the Bible, God had talked about how Gentiles would come to him, but they just weren't able to receive it at that time. God no, in no way contradicted his word, but he would correct their incomplete understanding with his grace and mercy. Cornelius was an uncircumcised man. That's true. They didn't realize that God had cleansed him through faith in Jesus Christ. The New Testament at that time was still being written. The impact of the gospel was only being discovered. And we read Peter's explanation in verse 4. But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheep let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. 
But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent from Caesarea. Then the, Lord, then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. He explains in detail the vision that he had on the roof of Simon the Tanner's house in Joppa. And he also conveys his reluctance when he said, Hey, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. Not so, Lord. Like he, he wasn't jumping at the opportunity to eat these unclean animals. But the voice from heaven contradicted him. You see the, the word at the beginning, but the voice answered. So again, it says, but I said this, but then he said this. So again, contradicting him, what God has cleansed, you must not call common or unclean. So the point of the vision wasn't about clean and unclean animals, but really God wanted to deal with Peter and the Jews who viewed other people as unclean. God had cleansed. While Peter's thinking over what the vision could possibly mean, I'm sure he does not like the implications of the vision. He's trying to sort it out, how it works within his theology framework. There's people at the door, and the Holy Spirit says, go with them, doubting nothing. And he was obedient to God. And we see here the wisdom of him bringing along six other believers with him who were reliable witnesses. And that's what it says in verse 12. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me and we entered the man's house. A takeaway for this is, if you believe the Lord has revealed something to you, it's good to confide in others near you what you believe God has said, who are born again and walking with Jesus. Notice that Peter did not write a letter to Jerusalem to get their take on how he should proceed. He was, you know what, I'm not really sure about this. This is making, you know, I, I want kind of a human opinion. Someone with authority who will tell me what's the right thing to do. I mean, how long would that have taken? But instead, as led by the Spirit, he goes with them the following day. They immediately go, as led by God. At the same time, Peter was not like, I've had a message from God, and he threw off all... Um, fellowship with believers through with whom he was, and he talked to them about it. He said, look, I had this vision. I'm not really sure how this is going to play out, but the Lord said to go, will you come with me? Will you come and be a witness and uh, come with me? So he, he sought their support in that. So he wasn't flying alone, going going on his own, but he also wasn't looking to human wisdom for counsel. He knew what he was going to do, and he took Christians along with him. He took believers with him who would support him, who could encourage him, who would correct him when necessary. And brethren, if we don't need correction, then we don't need each other. We do need correction. And the Lord's able to correct us. He doesn't need to use an arm of flesh, but quite often he does. <laughs> I'm really concerned when people having a revelation from God isolate themselves from fellowship with Christians because no one seems to meet their impeccable standards. Every church is filled with imperfect people. Christ is our head. If we cut ourselves off from other Christians because they're not worthy of our fellowship, then we distance ourselves from Jesus. He's the head, right? So let's 
Let's continue. In faith in God, not in self or knowledge alone, Peter does a great thing in bringing along these brethren, and they go together to Cornelius' house, uh, stepping way outside their comfort zone. Verse 13. It's good. You can step outside your comfort zone when you have the comforter within you. He will uphold you. He will enable you. Verse 13, and he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house who said to him, send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted the Gentiles repentance to life. Peter arrives in Caesarea. Cornelius tells Peter about the angel from God who stood in his house and spoke to him, who commanded him to send and bring Peter from Joppa. With this promise, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. Cornelius, we know, was a devout man. He prayed, he gave alms, but he was not yet saved because salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ. So he was a good man in a worldly sense, but um, he needed Jesus to be born again. And God, his, his deeds had come up as a memorial before him and made the way plain so he could uh, follow Christ. I'm sure as Peter walked all that distance, he he was putting together an outline of the things that he would be saying. Or like, you know, if there's an unbeliever, you think about the other sermons he's given, he, he would be thinking about what to say. He, he got five sentences out before the Holy Spirit fell on them. It says, as I was beginning to speak, he was just launching into, he's just warming up, you know, and, and suddenly everyone's uh, praising the Lord in tongues and uh, he's like, whoa, can we forbid water from these who have received the Holy Spirit even as we have? Who am I to withstand God? You know, if God would send an angel into this Gentile's house, certainly I could walk into that house. And if the Holy Spirit should fill these people to overflowing, well, who's to prevent them from being baptized even as we have? Who am I to withstand God? And the people, well, that's your take on it. No, no, they said they became silent. And they glorified God. And that's such a good point. They praised the Lord for what God had done, that he had saved them, that if they will repent, Gentiles too can be part of the family of God. That question, who am I to withstand God? There's been many people who have gone down that road and it never ends well. Terrible results. King Saul, we're, we're like him. We naturally prefer substituting sacrifice for obedience. We refuse God's word. We go our own way. Um, and Samuel said, if you do that, if you choose that path, you're no better than a devil-worshipping idolater, which is really strong. Saul rejected God's word, and God rejected him as king. So disobedience disqualifies. 
So thank the Lord that they yielded to God, and that was evidenced by them praising him. They were able to praise him, and like they were genuinely glad when they heard what God had done. They had been focused on Peter's supposed sin rather than rejoicing in God's salvation. And may that heart that we see in them be in ours too. It's it's very easy to be offended. Uh, have you ever noticed that? Pretty easy. You don't have to work at that. Like, well, I'm just you know working on becoming more sensitive <laughs> so that I'm easily offended. Well, that's just how we are naturally. Self-serving, self-seeking, self-assured, easily offended. But they repented of their previous judgments. They changed their minds. What Peter said changed their minds and their hearts were joyful to follow. And this transformation in the believers, and that's the thing, It's not just us being transformed from death to life, but once we're walking with Jesus, there's still transformation that needs to happen. That's a softening of the heart and a mind that that is in agreement with God because it's very easy for us to have our own ideas about how God should be and what things mean. And so here's a challenge for you. When's the last time a discussion with someone totally changed your mind on something? You came in thinking one thing. Someone said a few sentences and you go, you know, you're right and I was wrong. For me, it's exceedingly rare. It's pretty rare that that happens. And it's not because I'm always right. (laughs) Are you willing to discuss doctrine with others? Not Not to be combative and to, you know, this is my take and this is your take and let's fire some shots at each other and just kind of retreat but when we are we willing to reason with people to, to actually listen to what they're saying and take their perspective on board it's a big challenge for us isn't it especially those who have labored in the word and who have a, a level of understanding or experience so may the lord soften us so that we will yield to his spirit and his wisdom Not the wisdom of a man, but the wisdom of God through that person. And then we can praise God for the awesome things he's done. Because like, wow, he's changing me too. He didn't just change the Gentiles, but he's changing me. Now, I, I do believe that God will reveal himself in ways that defies our expectations. Our expectations are very small and limited. Like our our sight is really small. But like the people of Athens, I believe a lot of people, even in the church today, they have itching ears to hear something new. They're very in, they want to hear something different than they've heard before, and that keeps them interested. God doesn't change. His word doesn't change. Our understanding of his word as we mature should change, but his word, it remains the same. He is the same. There are people who claim that God is bigger than a book, and they'll use this to justify extra-biblical revelations, laying aside the truth of the word, to take on this new interpretation. But let me say, a new doctrine is oftentimes an old error just repackaged to to our tastes. So be careful of new truth. (laughs) It's in those old paths where God has plenty of revelation for us, not just about him, but about how we ought to live in light of that. So God's word, it's the absolute truth of God's wisdom. So if you have a dream, you have a vision, that's great. Have your dream and vision. But if it doesn't line up perfectly with the word of God, it's not to be followed as gospel. It's not true. 
Now, imagine if you went fishing in, uh, on the beach and you caught a mullaway. Uh, and you're like, imagine I went fishing and caught a fish. That's a pretty big stretch for a lot of us. But let's just go with me that far. You actually went beach fishing. You caught the mullaway you've been after for 30 years. And a, a mullaway or a jewfish, those are uh, 70 centimeters to keep. So it's a pretty good-sized fish. And you uh, you go fishing and you catch this fish. And it's the f- 30 minutes bringing it in. It's just, you're taking pictures, you're like, this is amazing, I'm going to eat, the whole family is going to eat, this is, this is such a good catch, and, and uh, you're just over the moon, it's already gone out on Facebook and Instagram, and um, you're like, mull away for dinner, and, and, and some employee from the Department of Primary Services is there, he's like, hey, let me inspect your license, and oh, you have a fish, hmm. Breaks out his tape on it. That's 67 centimeters. It's short. You can't keep this. You're like, well, hold on. This is the catch of my life. I've never caught a fish this big. I've never seen a fish this big. This is a banner day for me. I mean, you should see what I'm usually catching. And look at this. And he's like, take out your tape and check it yourself. And you take out the tape and hmm, 67 centimeters. It doesn't measure up. So no matter what sort of experience it was for you, no matter how much joy it brought to you, no matter how cool the pictures look, that fish is not a keeper. It has to go back. I've kept plenty of fish over the years. I've believed plenty of doctrines, and I've had plenty of practices, which I later discovered when weighed against the balance of God's word, were lacking. They were not correct or entirely correct. That's a fish. Well, yes, it's a fish. That's a mullaway. Oh, good. But is it a keeper? No, it's not a keeper. So don't hold on to those things when God's word says otherwise. It may have been a really cool experience, very useful, but it could seem useful. God will not contradict himself. Take out the word of God and measure it by the scripture. Because it's not my experience that says it's true. It's God's word that shows that to be the case. Acts 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turn to the Lord. Now I have a slide to show here, um, just to give you an idea of how the gospel spread. You have Jerusalem down at the bottom, and number one, there's a bunch of numbers on it, but up here to Antioch, it's about 480 k's away. It was quite a distance. See Cyprus, Cilicia, and then Tarsus up north. So just so you have an idea of where people are traveling from and to. So there were some people from Cyprus and Cyrene, and they traveled to Antioch and were preaching the gospel there to the Hellenists. And those are Greek-born Jews, likely Greek-speaking, but Jewish background. And I like what Matthew Henry wrote. He said, the enemy designed to scatter and lose them. Christ designed to scatter and use them. 
So he scattered them, but he used them. They were not lost or wasted. They, they were directed to where he would have them go. Thanks for that. Verse 21, it says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. The only other time in the New Testament this phrase, the Lord was with him, is speaking of John the Baptist, who was filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb in Luke 166. I, I just searched a few things that in the Bible, quite often, the, God, the hand of God has been against people, right? People who opposed God, people who disobeyed God, his hand was against them. And these are God's people. He's like, my hand is against you. So it's like, do you want God to be with you or to be against you? Well, it's in God's hand being with us because we're abiding in him that we can be fruitful as they were. A great number of people believe because God was with them. Those who are led by the Spirit and walk in God's ways, we can know God is with us because we are with him. No one can come to God without the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. God's uh, power needs to be involved in the salvation of anyone. Because we wouldn't have seen, we wouldn't have even come to Christ except he drew us to himself. As Jesus said in John 6, 44, No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. God brings conviction of sin. God brings the knowledge that we need a Savior. If we want God to be with us, we must yield to his leading. They preached Jesus, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. This is, this is what we want, right? We want people to come to Jesus and find life. Verse 21, the news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. I like the response of Jerusalem here. They hear it, and they're rejoicing. Gentiles and Hellenists, they're receiving the word of God, and they send Barnabas as far as Antioch. And so that gives me the impression that as he's traveling along, he's seeing where the gospel has spread. And that was the extent of his journey, was to go to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. He was unlike the older brother in the parable Jesus told, who was incensed that his younger brother would find favor in the eyes of his father after wasting his inheritance. No, he was glad to see it. He rejoiced that the grace of God had come to Antioch and to those people and that they had turned to the Lord. And he gives this exhortation. So he didn't just go there to sightsee, like, hmm, okay, let's see if they're doing things the right way. He didn't go with a critical attitude. He went there to see what had happened, but he exhorted the people. He encouraged them that with purpose of heart, they should continue with the Lord. So uh, the Lord was with them, and he says, continue with the Lord. The word purpose there, it's really interesting. It's prothesis, which means setting forth proposal, especially the showbread in the temple as exposed before God. That's all, oh. That's a pretty interesting picture. Purposed. Now, 
Even as the light in the temple was to shine continually, the showbread was always to be on the table of showbread. If you go to the Temple Institute in in Jerusalem, you can see the table of showbread, which really it more looks like a rack than a table. But um, and you can go on the website and check it out as well. And Traditionally, they would put on the bread and then they would take the new loaf of bread and they would push off the old loaf so that it was always in contact with the table. They take it extremely literally. It says, that bread is supposed to be appearing before me continuously. So they never took it off and put the other one on. They would push it off and someone would receive it on the other side. Like they took it real serious as being exposed before the Lord. We're, we're putting this bread on this table in obedience to God. You know, those, those loaves all stacked on top of each other. The heart, it speaks of our desires and affections. Our heart are, is always exposed before the Lord. And so in sa- the same way that there was this purpose in uh, placing that bread on the table before the Lord, that our hearts, we would open it before the Lord and say, Lord, I want to be with you. I want to be abiding in you. I'm going to expose my heart to you completely, purposefully, even as they did in those days. And so he says, keep your hearts pure before the Lord. Keep walking with the Lord. It's one thing to start following him, but stay with him. Don't get proud. Don't start going your own way. You stay with the Lord. He saved you. Don't don't forsake him. It would have been really easy for Barnabas to emphasize continuing in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers. All those things can be done externally without your heart being in them. Right? You can believe things. You can gather. You can eat. We can do all that. But if your heart is wrong, if your heart is not clean before the Lord, there's a serious problem. Now, if your heart's clean before the Lord, then those other things will flow naturally. So he doesn't make it about external things. Hey, guys, make sure you're doing communion. Make sure that you're you're meeting house to house. And this doctrine, don't forget it. He goes to the heart. So make sure your heart's right before God. And he exhorted them strongly to keep walking with the Lord. The most important thing for them and for us is to persevere in maintaining and growing in an intimate relationship with the Lord where our heart is just laid open before him. And when there's resistance to him, that we would yield. We'd notice it. Say, hmm, I think the Lord's speaking to me, but, but I'm not liking what he's saying. I'm not, I'm not in agreement with him. And whenever that happens and there's this battle going on, yield to the Lord. Choose to walk with him instead of against him. And those are the qualifications of a good man and woman or child. That's not a phrase that's often used in the Bible, but a good man. The passage says, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And if you want to be a good man, a good woman, well, there it is, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. We need the Holy Spirit to cleanse us and regenerate us and the faith to obey him. And to even in saying the things to strangers that may feel uncomfortable. Verse 25, Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. I love this. 
He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And where did he go? He was supposed to go as far as Antioch, but instead he goes to Tarsus to seek Saul. Jesus told his disciples when compelled to walk a mile, they should walk two. And should God command us to go beyond where we expect to go, should we refuse him? No. I found God often leads us to go beyond the boundaries of our original plan in serving him. All right, Lord, I'm willing to take that step. I'm willing to trust you that far. And he's like, ah, but are you willing to go here too? And you're like, oh, well, (laughs) that was not discussed right at the beginning. you know. And and Barnabas could have said, hey, I'm supposed to go as far as Antioch. That's it. But no, he went a bit further. Because 12 years have passed since Saul ministered with Barnabas in Jerusalem. 12 years. God hadn't forgotten Saul, but neither had Barnabas. And the Spirit led him, I have no doubt. He was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. He continued his journey to seek Saul out in his town of Tarsus. For 12 years, the time wasn't right for them to be ministering together, but now the time had come. And he went and talked with them and brought them back to to Antioch. And for a whole year, it says, they assembled with the church and they taught a great many people. So they have this great teaching ministry. And the season apart, it was no hindrance to their fruitfulness. Verse 26, it says, And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. The disciples of Jesus did not initially call themselves Christians. This was a description given them by others. The term's only found in other, two other places in the New Testament. Uh, we see it in Acts 26, 21. Uh, I think 1 Peter 4, 16. Some have suggested that this was a title meant to insult followers of Jesus. Those who opposed Christ were opposed to his people. Uh, Whether or not it was meant as an insult, um, I believe, I imagine that believers delighted to identify with Christ even if it was intended to be a badge of shame because Jesus had suffered so much for them. It made me think, well, why would someone call them Christians? Why would they give them that name? Well, simply, they spoke a lot about Jesus Christ. They did the things Jesus Christ did. There were things they didn't do because of Jesus Christ. There were things they chose to do because of Jesus Christ. They were devoted in their practices and their allegiance to the one who had risen from the dead, the one who had told them to do these things. Like, Well, why do you guys gather together and you eat bread and you drink the wine? What's all that about? Well, this is what Jesus told us to do. And it was not what everyone else was doing. This was quite different. And and the groups of people that had gathered. It was, Jesus was the only thing in common. I mean, you had rich and poor and slave and free and foreigners, Gentiles and Jews getting together. This does not happen. What is the reason for this? What is uniting you guys? And it was Christ. All redeemed and reconciled by God. Happy to be together. It's a good thing to consider. Is it possible we are known as religious, a nice guy, a good neighbor, but not as a follower of Jesus? Do people know that you follow Jesus? Would there be evidence that they'd go, okay, I've heard him say the name of Jesus. I've heard her talk about Jesus. I've seen something that 
helps me to connect how they are in love and trust. Having been washed with the blood of Jesus, our allegiance to him ought to be worn on our sleeve, but I'm not advocating some hackneyed uh, Christianity defined by all the things that we don't do or our outrage against uh, worldly things or um, you know, bumper stickers or clothing or shouting from soapboxes at people. Um, if the Lord directs you to do anything, well, who am I to withstand God? However, our life is to proclaim, whether by word or deed, consistently that Jesus Christ is our Lord. That we say the things we do because of Jesus, and we do what we do because of Jesus. And we love to gather with other people who love Jesus, and we, we desire fellowship with one another. Lives infused by the grace of God, the truth of the gospel, slow to speak, slow to wrath, quick to repent, quick to obey, praying continually, consistent in what we practice and preach, that we put a high priority on living the word of God, not just telling people what they should or shouldn't do. Let Christ live through you. Give him the glory. Like, I I don't want to be just known as a nice guy. I want to be kind. I want to be compassionate and gentle. But I want people to realize that it's just because of Jesus in me that there can be any blessing from this life at all. Acts 11.27 In those days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. There is a place for prophets in the church of God. I remember as a kid in Sunday school, our teachers I had teachers that would say, well, we have the word of God now. We don't need prophets like they needed to in the Old Testament. And Uh, Well, here's Agabus, and here he is speaking the word of God. And it wasn't in Scripture that he could turn to and say, well, see, there's going to be a famine. The Holy Spirit revealed it to him, and it came to pass. So it showed he was genuine in that, even as Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dreams that there would be seven years of good and then seven years of famine, and they took precautions and provisions to prepare, the same sort of thing happens here. The Spirit led him, and all these other believers, also filled with the Spirit, they respond to this prophecy. Hey, there's going to be a famine in Judea. What do they do? In obedience to the leading, they start taking a collection. They start gathering up resources to bless the church in Judea, so in Jerusalem. And this is so ironic, right? You have these these Gentiles and Hellenists in Antioch. And God's now using them. So a prophet from Jerusalem goes to Antioch. He gives a message. Everyone responds. And then they send back a gift with Barnabas and Saul to minister to the need even before it happened. That's just awesome. God does this. Now, in Scripture, the two basic kinds of prophecy, they're predictive and didactic. Predictive is predicting something that hasn't happened. Didactic is correction or instruction. A lot of the prophets, there is instruction in there about how the people are living and how they ought to change to align themselves with God. 
So a genuine prophet needs to be 100% in their, um, their prophecies in the name of the Lord. Under the law in Deuteronomy 18, if you spoke presumptuously, the penalty was death. Pretty severe. Like if the watchtower was a prophet in the Old Testament, there would be no publication, there'd be no publication, okay? Because there's been so many errors that have been made. Today, under the New Covenant, we do not execute people for making a false prophecy. But we ought to take to heart Deuteronomy 18.22 that says, When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, this is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So that means don't buy their DVDs. Don't buy their books anymore. They have said the wrong thing. They spoke presumptuously. And if they've spoken presumptuously in the name of the Lord once, they can easily speak presumptuously in the name of the Lord again and dress it up and say, well, it's just because of this and that, make excuses. But the reality is God's word is what we need to trust. If the spirit of God has moved you to speak, speak. And it will come to pass because he has said it. Maybe not in the time you expect. But God revealed to Agabus by the Holy Spirit there would be a famine. Later it came to pass. So we know that, okay, he was listening to the Lord and speaking correctly. Jesus warned of false prophets. This suggests very strongly that there will be and are genuine prophets. Right? He said, Matthew 7.15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They're just looking to eat, to consume. Don't believe everything they say, right? Beware. Just be on guard. And we have the word. So we don't have to worry. And and I remember there was, a, there was a person who used to go to a church I was at, and this individual would bring in a lot of prophetic stuff. And I remember there was one, one line that says, in 2000, whatever, Hillary will be at the helm. And I was like, oh, you know what? I'm just going to keep... There was a whole list of things that were supposedly going to happen. I'm going to hold on to this. And we'll see about that. I held on to it for years. And then when she didn't win the election, I said, the next time someone pushes that at me, I'm like, you know what? It didn't come true. I don't need to read any of it. I felt very good about that. Ah, have the word of God, and that's what we need. Isn't it amazing how God unites a sinner with himself? He, he takes someone who is lost and dead in sins, and he makes them alive to God. And then you think about how he unites people. When we look around this room, there's people from you know, the states and islands and uh, Asia and, and all over the world where he's brought us together. And, and I love the fact, it's so lovely that it was talked about last week that Epping and Sydney are going to merge together. You just think it's so it's beyond unlikely given the history. If you were to go back a decade and to say, how how is this going to work out? Would this would this work? And God does that. That's what God does. And so it's so exciting when we see God uniting people, God moving on the hearts of people, where He's changed me and He's changed you, and He's continuing to change us as we yield to Him. And that is lovely when we see God uniting people in Jesus, because that is what is keep, that is what he is who is drawing us together as one. It's Jesus. He's the reason why we gather. He's the reason why we're in this place. He's the one doing it. 
So it's not through our efforts or, you know, oh, we're so gracious and humble with each other. No, it's Jesus who's doing it. It's his work. It's his body. It's his house. So I don't think it's a bigger shock than Jews associating with Gentiles. (laughs) That was a really big shock to the Jews. But what a testimony of God's grace among us. So let us continue walking with him. Let's continue in the grace of God. He will do the work. He will bring it to pass. We have a gracious Savior whose love never fails. And with purpose of heart, let's keep walking with the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that it's true, that we can count on it, that you have joined us to yourself. That is a a miracle beyond words. And that you've united us with other believers, Lord. That, too, is a great joy and a blessing. And I pray, Father, we would continue with you in purpose of heart, that we would lay our hearts before you, that we'd be united with you as one, that we wouldn't uh, have offense when we should be rejoicing, that we would delight in you. We would, we would really, people would know we're Christians because of our love for one another. It would be so evident, Lord, that you're doing a work, not for our glory, Lord, but for your name and the glory of it. We ask, Lord, that you would be pleased through this fellowship through the body of Christ, spread throughout the world. Lord, we may be scattered at times, but we know that you you will use us. So we thank you, Lord, for, for drawing us to yourself and uniting us in your name with one another. And we pray that you would strengthen, you would encourage, you would equip, and you would make us fruitful as we follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.